0: Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, Shedding Light on Yin Yoga and Meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a Yin Yoga and Meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. This podcast is intended to be an in-depth exploration of the intersections between Yin Yoga and Chinese medicine and meditation, and each episode will shed light on one or several of these themes. In this episode, I bring you an in-depth interview with David Lisondak. David is an allied health member in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where he maintains a clinical practice in structural integration, visceral manipulation, and other fascial modalities. David is also the author of the new book, Fascia, What Is It and Why It Matters? And in my opinion, this book is the most cogent, clear, and easy to understand book on fascia right now out there. In this interview, we'll talk about all things fascia, some of the latest research, uh, some of the implications for our health regarding our fascia, and also the connection that fascia plays in our mind-body connection. So without further ado, I bring you David Lissondack. Let's begin. What, does, what is fascia? If you were to meet someone at a cocktail party and, and someone to approach mm-hmm. you with that question, what's your, what's your elevator pitch?
1: <laughs> okay, so, well... You said elevator, you said cocktail party. If this was a cocktail party, I'd look at what was on their plate. And uh, if they had a meat portion on their plate, I would point out the white stuff in the piece of ham. Uh, That's your fascia. That's your connective tissue. So here I have a sample of connective tissue. And uh, it's actually uh, something that you would uh, put on a wine bottle to protect it. It's not really your fascia, boys and girls. But your fascia is a connective tissue and system so it's a tissue and it's a system that covers every bone every muscle every organ and every nerve okay and it has a stretchability ability to it. it it has um if you think about nylon hosiery that has threads coming in at different angles that gives it a certain amount of stretch but also a certain amount of strength and stability so you can imagine this material covering your muscles and your bones so that when you move and stretch, it moves and stretches with you up to a point, but it can also contract and give you greater stability. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was largely disregarded uh, in the body for the better part of 500 years of anatomy. Uh, There were always a few outliers who said, well, what is this stuff? But when you have a scalpel and you're peeling everything away, this is the stuff that's in the way of the liver. This is the stuff that's in the way of the bicep. This is the stuff that's in the way of the stuff you want to look at. And depending on the condition of the cadaver that you're using, and more importantly, if it was preserved, uh, this tissue in a dead body is about as interesting as wet insulation. So um, studying it in and of itself seemed to be kind of silly. And even today in your first year of medical school, when you've got your cadaver there for the semester, um, you got to bag and tag everything. So you take something out, you got to put the name and the number on it so it can all be put back together at the end for burial cremation, what have you. But the, the fascia, the connective tissue, you can just chuck that in the wastebasket along with the fat that you remove.
0: So yeah. it's almost an
1: unconscious bias. Right, it's that important.
0: I've heard it sometimes described as the, you know, as the disparagingly as the inert packing material of the body.
1: Um, Yes, and to a degree that's true. It has a, it has an insulation uh, quality to it, uh, like the packing peanuts uh, in the box that has the stuff in the middle that you want to keep safe. That's part of its property, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, It's predominantly. Composed of collagen, which is the most abundant protein in the body. It also, uh, on a level of tensile strength, is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, substance in the body. So it actually has, on a level of uh, tension and compression, uh, the same strength as the structural steel they used to build skyscrapers. But under the right forces, the collagen, and steel for that matter, can slowly loosen up, change their shape, get slightly more liquid that's why when there's an earthquake, buildings just don't snap they might bend, but they don't snap it's the same with the body you know if you snap if you actually break a bone to push this out through the skin that's a lot more rare in a sports injury than it is tearing uh your connective tissue, the white stuff
0: and is white stuff is it i mean you mentioned it being around muscle and bone is it where and also around organs but it's a my understanding it's a three-dimensional webbing right That's a, that literally encases everything every cell too to a certain degree Well, yes,
1: all the way down to the cellular level correct correct so so the cells have a cytoskeleton so that cytoskeleton is made up of monofilaments of collagen that run through the cell and actually connect to the outer membrane of the cell, and there's a particular receptor that can take incoming information uh, of pressure and vibration and actually affect uh, the shape and the structure of the cell via the cytoskeleton. So it's an amazingly broad interconnected network. That's what allows some people. Some people see it as a whole body signaling system, and I don't know that they're wrong. There's certainly a lot of compelling evidence to suggest that that is one of its functions.
0: I think you use the phrase in your book uh, referring to the fascia as the intranet. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Which I think captures that that concept. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, uh, I I I can't remember if, I think you use this this analogy, or not even analogy, it's actually what they're doing with heart, for heart transplants, but um, I've heard it elsewhere that if you were to dip the human body into a cell dissolving detergent, of some, if you could imagine a large vat that would that yep. wash out every, every single cell and then remove what was re- remaining, you would still yep. have a, a veritable likeness of the hum, of that human.
1: Correct, correct. You can also you can also see that actually in the circulatory system, uh, or at least you have a pretty good you'd have a pretty good representation of that person's shape. Um, i 've also seen in the Body Worlds exhibit from Germany uh, where they did that, except they just left all the circulatory system, including uh, you know as fine as they could get it. it was under glass, it was remarkable. Uh, you could tell male from female you could you know, it, it, you know the the relative size of the person. Uh, I think the connective tissue would probably give you even more of the contours because of its everywhereness
0: right. And I just wanted to mention that to try to give listeners a a sense of its ubiquity. Because if you go to the doctor and, you know, if you're a runner, for example, and you have inflammation in in the sole of your foot, you're going to get a diagnosis with plantar fasciitis, like the fascia, the connective tissue of your foot's inflamed. um, Mm -hmm. And it seems like
1: this localized sheet or... or, or Correct. Correct. And the other big one is IT band syndrome. Right. Right. Uh, and your IT band is a very broad, big piece of fascia that's supposed to be tight and tough because it's part of what keeps you on two legs. Um, where, is that? where is that? For...
0: Places... Me? Where is it? Sorry, where is the IT band
1: for okay. non The IT band is here, okay, from the hip down to the knee on the lateral aspect approximately. Um, And what you tend to see when they talk about IT band, plantar fasciitis, is that's where they couldn't, there was no, uh, the fascia is so thick and dense in those parts that they leave it and that becomes part of the musculoskeletal body. But what you have to realize is that every single muscle has a wrapping of fascia around it. So from a... From a traditional musculoskeletal viewpoint, you might say there are two hundred and twelve bones and six hundred and thirty four muscles from a fascial standpoint, you would still say there's two hundred and twelve bones, but there's one muscle wrapped in fascia that goes all around and is heat sealed down in six hundred and thirty four different places um, that is potentially a more equally valid model uh, in terms of a metaphorical way to look at it
0: right and that that is That newer model of one muscle Mm -hmm. subdivided by these various pockets of fascia, connective tissue, is really more the emergent model that we're seeing in in the bodywork world, right?
1: Correct. Correct. Now, it's not designed to supplant uh, what Tom Myers likes to call the single muscle theory, which is if I just had my deltoid on my arm, what would it do? It would raise my arm, it would immediately laterally rotate it. Um, It's good to understand that kind of function, but that's not the way uh, the body thinks. Uh, Muscles don't work in isolation. Uh, There was a test that was done using uh, electric needles to measure muscle conductance. And uh, if I was standing up, and I raised my arm. One of the first muscles to fire is my calf muscle to stabilize the whole structure, so that by the act of raising my arm it doesn't throw me off balance. So, um, if that's if that's the case. Our muscles are, our muscular system is incredibly more complex than just, you know, insert slot A into tab B and and keep moving on. So it's important to understand the individual function, but also then how it works together as a system. So it's really easy to say, well, gee, uh, I'm working on your quadricep, but you are feeling it. Uh, up here in your deltoid that's because it's all connected but if I don't have a good sense of why or how those two structures could be connected uh, the therapeutic value of that is is moot if I know what the connection is then my therapy becomes better
0: hmm so is the fascial syst- is it, is the fascia itself becoming considered its own system is it is it, is it receiving that kind of designation
1: that's the direction we're moving towards uh, at the Fascia Research Society and those folks responsible for the uh, Fascia Research Congress that we have every three years, which started back in 2007 at Harvard, which was kind of nice. Um, we, uh, we came up with the clinical definition of it as a tissue, and now the powers that be are looking for a unanimous consensus I believe a consensus is unanimous uh, on defining the fascial system to to incorporate, uh, you know, tendons, ligaments, the visceral fascia, the epineurium, which is the fascial coating of the nerve, so on and so forth. Because it functions as a system, but from a tissue standpoint, you can be more discreet about it. Got it. So, you know, so it's it's a both and kind of thing. Right. You know, your stomach is an organ. It's not, it has tissue, but it's not a tissue. It's an organ. This is both. Yeah. And in that and both, um,
0: systematic or systemic model, what do you identify as some of the main functions? Like what's the, this is the get into the, why does it matter part of your title? Like what, so what, Uh why do we care about this, this tissue?
1: Okay. Well, um, so I predominantly for those of you out there in Internet land. Uh, I am predominantly a clinician who works with people in chronic pain that nobody knows what else to do with. Uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of my specialty because that's usually where um, there's usually a connective tissue problem of one kind or another. Now, this collagen is designed to respond to supply and demand. So, to go with an easy example, because we're all sitting here in front of our computers, if uh, if I'm not using If I spend eight hours a day at my job on a computer and my ergonomics aren't good, so I'm up like this and I'm typing, and then I go home and I uh, put something in the microwave and I sit down and I unwind by playing video games and so on, um, the collagen in my body, the cells that produce the collagen, the fibroblasts, are going to respond to this message of tension by building more collagen in this area. To support what I'm doing on a regular basis. Let me let me just pause you there for a second because that's a. I mean, you're getting into
0: the real pragmatics of this. Um, Most people, though, listening, right? When the average person listening right now, when they think of sitting at their desk and their shoulders shrugging up, or that they're staring at their phone, getting kind of what is now called text neck, they're going to think they have tension in their muscles, right? Right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but you're describing a reinforcement of the this collagenous tissue that's around and within the muscle that's locking the muscle into that pattern, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, and they do have tension in their muscle. You're not wrong about that. But over time, that colla- that collagenous network is going to build up and harden around those areas. So you you can go get your chiropractic adjustment. You can go get your massage and feel better for a day, but it doesn't get better. It doesn't stay better because the this tissue is going. Nope, come on right back, okay? Because it's not. It's being it's it's being affected, but it's not being addressed. So we can we can. And I'm not knocking either of those two modalities. Um, I use them myself. But if your fascia is too tight in your neck and you get a neck adjustment and the next day it's back, that's because this is acting like a really tough rubber band made out of steel, going no, nope, we're going back here because this hasn't caught up to the to the initial aspect of the adjustment. So if we go in there and loosen it up and make it more pliable, then your regular maintenance things uh, will be more effective for you as an individual. But we also, if we're thinking globally here, we have to look at how is that neck relating to the shoulder, to the bones, to the ribcage, so on and so forth. So that's where understanding all these individual muscles and their origins and insertions come into play in terms of getting a good sustained result from a therapeutic aspect. Was that too much? No, that's good. That's <laughs> good. Okay.
0: All right. Um, so, so you in your own work, it sounds like you're working with chronic pain, pain that doesn't respond to other mm-hmm. various forms of treatment. Um, right. and, and, and performance issues. So,
1: you know, athletic type people, you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now and my running isn't what it used to be, you know, those kinds of things. So it doesn't have to be pain per se, but just anything in terms of the body not working as well as the person in the body thinks it should be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And is there, what, what is the sort of the
0: arc of aging as it relates to the health or state of the connective tissue? Yeah. What, what does the well, science have to say around that at this point? You know?
1: the, the arc of aging. That's good. Well, we definitely lose water content as we get older. We do get drier. And uh, I'd like to say that that, that can be overcome uh, because, hey, I just hit 50, so <laughs> I have a vested interest suddenly uh, in these sorts of things. But it is true. As we age, we do dry out a little bit. And uh, the connective tissue, your fascia – likes a certain amount of water content to stay pliable and elastic as well as give you some structure and stability. Um, What tends to happen, though, in the traditional sense, and by that I mean the way that we have been uh, indoctrinated, uh, all puns, uh, maybe I did mean that pun, indoctrinated to think about like, well, I'm getting old and this is wearing out, so I guess it's time to replace that knee. Not necessarily. I think it's great. That we can get, uh, we can replace any. E. It just happened to my sister, uh, and she absolutely needed it, and I'm glad she's much happier now. But we don't always have to get to the point where that's necessary. So, what will happen is if we have habitual use patterns that are less than optimal for us and we're not doing anything. So, yeah, maybe I can do this for eight hours a day and then go out and shoot hoops every other day for a couple of hours, and it doesn't affect me because I'm doing something else with my body that gives a different input to that area, okay? So I don't have that same buildup than somebody who just is very sedentary in their lifestyle. Um, But what happens is, is over time, and I'm talking years, not just three months, six months, 18 months, which is a lot of what I see, um, is you get uneven wear patterns. So let's just say that ideally, here's, here's my knee Here's my leg on top of my knee, and it should work like this. Well, if something happens, and it's working like that, that's going to send a very definite message every time I take a step into that knee joint and other places. Uh, Excuse me, there I am. And other places. So if you look on the, if this is the outside of the leg, and this is the inside of the leg, I'm going to be compressing the inside and overstretching the outside. Yeah? Mm -hmm. makes sense? (laughs) So... That whole nature over years is that misalignment is going to change and the tissue is actually going to break down just like just like any other uh, machine that you have at home that like, you know, if you if you if you bend your wheel or your axle and you don't get it fixed, it's going to affect your tire wear It's going to it could affect your whole engine over a period of months to years. It's the same with your body. You can wear that out to the point where you have to get it replaced because there's no tissue there to restore. Now, let's just say that hypothetically you had an accident and you knew this was going on. And within the first six to 18 months, you saw a fascia specialist like myself. And there's many different um, names that they go under uh, professionally. You might be able to get that back where it is aligned. And then that doesn't become a problem for you. Uh, Now, actual mileage varies from person to person. So I've seen some amazing people well into their 70s where we were able to effect really good change by basically changing the physical, mechanical input into the body, slowly beginning to move and unbend, if you will, these areas that were misaligned. And then the natural restoration process of the body on the cellular level takes over every time they take a step and those forces are slightly different different than they were on the joint before the intervention Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I've seen people in their 40s who were so broken down they seemed as if they were older than the people in their 70s so how you take care of yourself uh, really makes a difference Um, you know and in the more accidents and more surgeries you've had that can really change the game too so age is a factor but it's not the most important factor
0: you know while you're speaking I, I I wanted to loop back to what you're what you're initially talking about chronic pain or pain that's uh, non treatable in other ways um, What is it about the fascia that is implicated with chronic pain, whether it's say low back pain or like neck pain or shoulder pain what what what, it, what, what role does it have in terms of pain genesis and pain resolution?
1: Usually, uh, fascia-type pain doesn't really manifest for a while. You know, like if, if, I just, if, I just got, if I just got rear-ended in a car accident and walked out fine, uh, a chiropractic adjustment, a massage, some acupuncture, or something like that might really get me back to where I need to go. Um, the fascia thing will start because of the slow way collagen forms and reforms three to six months down the road. So, um, I'll give an example of myself here. Um, I got a mild concussion when I got hit by a door this way on my head. Um, about four months later, I started developing chronic arm and shoulder pain. Um, and I was like, where did this come from? Cause I didn't do anything. And then I remembered when I took that blow to the head, I was holding a hot cup of coffee that I never managed to spill because something in my body said, you know, don't burn yourself on top of what just happened and everything tightened up around not spilling that cup of coffee on myself. So something in the shockwave of that tension set off a very big effect that manifested three months down the road in terms of limited mobility. And the important thing here in terms of pain signals, okay? Cause uh, they're, you know, pain, pain happens in the brain. Uh, I also think it, It happens in the tissue. I don't think it has to be one or the other, Uh, and that's a whole other thing we could spend an hour talking about. But there is a class of nerves called sensory nerves. So uh, I think most of the the viewers out here think of the nervous system as the motor nerve. So, oh, I'm feeling a little dry, Mm -hmm. and it sends the signals down the spine, down the arm, and I drink, and I'm good to go. Sensory nerves – are uh, that's a direct connection, that's direct wires like the old style telephone. Sensory nerves work more like cell phones. They can call anywhere in the body that they have a number for. And they live in the more superficial layers between the skin in the superficial fascia, uh, the topmost layer, and they live in the sliding areas between the muscles. So if I have a lot of tension in my muscles and they're not sliding on each other correctly, over time those sensory nerves, they they lose their ability to transmit signals other than pain because things aren't sliding, things aren't happy. If you restore, which is a clinical word, by the way, happy. Mm-hmm. If you restore the, the sliding aspect of the muscle and you restore some proprioception to that area, we find that the pain signals tend to diminish.
0: You're just interested... Uh- a high-level term, proprioception, would you like to define that for us?
1: Yes, I will. Uh, Proprioception is your innate sense of your body. So everybody at home, you can try this as long as you're not listening to this in your car and driving. Uh, Close your eyes and touch your nose with your index finger, okay? That's proprioception, okay? You can feel where your body is in space without having to see what you're doing, okay? That's proprioception. What tends to happen is, or rather what what has been uh, observed and documented, is that there is a relationship between proprioception and pain. So if you have people with low back pain, they spend a lot of time trying to not aggravate that low back pain. So they tend to move it less, compensate in ways that they move to not perturb the waters. That tends to make things uh, more locked down in those areas. And they have less proprioception. If you knock out the nerves in healthy people with no low back pain so that they don't have proprioception, suddenly that's all they feel is pain Till that nerve uh, knockout wipes off because they literally can't innately feel that area of their body. So the nerves are like, okay, there must be a problem here. There could be damage. Let's not move it. And that's why pain signals exist is to tell you no, wait, stop.
0: So, so so so, if I understand you correctly, let me try to reflect this back if please. if the if your brain's uh perception through proprioception of a particular area is not functioning well is the it's the the line isn't connected well, are right. you saying the default response in the body is to generate
1: pain right or da- well the signal is danger, which we translate more more often than not as pain okay okay, so it's like please stop this right now. Okay, um, so when people say on my table, it's okay, I can handle the pain, I'm like, no, 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 no. It might feel intense, but we don't want pain. There's there's a difference here, because your nervous system has a, your nervous system has a different response to, to that than it does to uh, being mildly uncomfortable from time to time. Um, and, is that, yeah, did that, that answer your question? Yeah, right? and,
0: well, I, I'd like to see if we can back it up with some of the studies you mentioned in the book yeah. around treatments that 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 um sort of had one arm in the trial emphasizing cultivating proprioception during the treatment versus not
1: oh okay okay that so I think was, I, I think
0: okay. that's that and this feeds into to looking at the relationship between mindfulness and and fascia which we can get to in, okay in a few yeah steps.
1: no that that's a brilliant segue man um so i i think you're talking about the study that was done with Lorimer Mosley uh with chronic uh regional pain syndrome patients, which is really um, that diagnosis is very, uh, very complicated because there is, there is a strong uh, mental uh, uh, component to people who have CRPS, it seems. Um, so what they found, what they did in this experiment was they, they took people who had this problem in the hand and in the arm, and uh, one group got the, the normal, got the regular treatment and they were allowed to read a book, listen to music, whatever, but basically be passive and not pay attention. The other group, uh, I need to say this, neither group got to see the arm being treated, so there was like a a screen and, and you couldn't see it. Now, the people that had to pay attention were looking at a representation of the arm, and the arm was marked off in certain areas by numbers, and they had to say where they were feeling the treatment based on the rep- looking at the representation of the arm. So let's say this area here by the thumb was four, and that area we could simulate, they would say, oh, I feel that in area four, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, what they found was that the, the people who had to pay attention got overwhelmingly better response to the treatment than the people who were able to zone out and not pay attention, so the idea being that discrimination plays a big factor in the success of treatment. Being able to discriminate where you feel it, what you're feeling, how the quality of movement is. So translating that in a bigger way, uh, I'm treating a runner who has shin splints. So basically for those of you who are listening who don't run, it's like really painful in the lower leg. And there's usually a particular pathology that follows that, that you can look, if you know what you're looking for, when you look at their legs, you can see it. So I will treat one shin. I will have them move their foot in a particular way while I'm treating the shin. That gets the brain working. That also gets the muscle working. That helps me get it less stuck and more sliding. Then I have them get off the table and put their feet on the ground and feel the difference in the treated shin versus the untreated shin and even have them walk around a little bit. So this all engages that aspect of being able to discriminate what's different. That seems to have a much profounder effect and get better results than just if I worked on the shin and then worked on the other shin and then they left my office and went about their business. So there is something going on in the processing between the tissue, the nervous system and the brain. I'm certain of it. Mm
0: But the exact mechanism is still sort of shrouded in mystery at this point, or is it i mean it seems observational in a certain sense uh, yeah but the, yeah. the exact the exact and i you know maybe this point good point mm-hmm. to pause in general that for anyone listening and we start to get into sort of the vagariness of this um mm. we have to remember that that the research on fascia is truly very very young right it's it, it is it is i mean
1: there are always people who understood that it probably had a better, you know, going back to this guy in the twenties, this guy in the 1890s, uh, Lamarck in the early 1800s, uh, Ida Rolfe in the 1950s. Um, there were always people who understood it had an important significance that other people were missing. Uh, but the actual science of studying what that significance is, is yes, relatively speaking in its infancy. Mm -hmm. Um, so, there are certain mechanisms, there are certain areas we could point to and go, aha, here is, here's a likely cohort. Here's a reason why, uh, maybe these effects are happening. Um, and they're relational effects, they're not always simple cause and effect. If I take antihistamine, oh, suddenly I can breathe again. There's a direct cause and effect. Working with the fascial system, sometimes it's more about changing the relationship between the leg, the knee, the hip, the waist, and so on that generates the analgesic effect. So, we are discovering nerves, uh, we are discovering chemical substances, for example, um, under the right conditions. Uh, we know that when you stimulate the collagen network in a particular way, you can. The process is called mechanotransduction, uh, which is creating cellular change through mechanical stimulation rather than chemical stimulation. And In this case, we can produce uh, anti-inflammatory effects in the body through mechanical stimulation, but they're happening on the level of the cell. Uh, We know that there are five different types of mechanoreceptors, basically sensory nerves, that respond to... Pressure and vibration in movement in certain ways give off certain signals that seem to tie into the whole mind body connection piece. Um, we're still learning, these seem to explain why we get some of the consistent results that we get, but how we can more specifically target those areas to improve our results uh, is certainly an area that, that's wide open.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, if I can replace some of what you just said and, and, okay. and, and try to unpack it a little bit more. Um, sure. You brought the issue of inflammation and th- this fancy word mechanotransduction um, being shown to, to reduce some level of inflammation. Before we get to the inflammation piece, part of that, mechanotransduction is, is broadly speaking, the way that external forces on the body influence mm-hmm. cellular behavior. Right. Correct. Instead of instead of a, so instead of that, a instead of a c- chemical agent causing cellular activity, an mm-hmm. external force, you know, in in the extracellular milieu, which is the connective tissue, right. um, it could be that force could be a tennis ball, it could be a foam roller, it could be a, mecha- a, a, a body worker's elbow, right? Yes. All of yes. these things they're causing a force into the th- into the tissue, and in the cell. And Are you talking about fibroblasts or just cells in general? I'm talking about
1: cells in general.
0: Okay. So the cells okay. have receptors on their membrane listening to these mechanical stresses that are being applied to the system at large, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So from there, how do we get to the anti-inflammation piece and how how global is that anti-inflammation uh, response?
1: Well, um, there was uh, There was a study that was done that showed that um, after vigorous exercise, deep tissue massage created an anti-inflammatory effect in the areas treated because they were able to take samples and measure them. And the, and
0: the exercise was creating inflammation, right?
1: Right, right. So it was like really intense exercise, and then okay, let's go in and do some really intense body work. And, uh, and what they found was basically that via the process of mechanotransduction, which happens through the collagen network, uh, the genes that produce the anti-inflammatory cytokines were turned on, and the genes that improve that produce the inflammatory effects were turned off. So that's pretty cool, um, and. Um, it, how I take that as a responsible clinician again is you know you can't overwork a tissue and get exactly what you don't want, which is an inflammatory response by being too intense mm-hmm. um, but that that to me is a use that to me is a useful fact um now how how we apply that to refine our therapies um that's still a matter for more investigation and speculation
0: yeah, or even best practices around what to do after. Vigorous exercise, right? Right. What, what would right. be Is there is there any kind of emerging consensus around what folks? In the, well, in the most people is-
1: don't know this study exists. It's only three years old, which is a drop in the. I mean, that's just you know, it takes a long time for these studies sometimes to to be brought to light. Which was one of the reasons um, why I wrote the book, mm-hmm. um, because I was I, I was very very fortunate to be in a sweet spot. Uh, between being a clinician who was in the middle, literally, of all the emerging science and the conferences, and I uh, documenting these conferences for archival purposes. So um, I got exposed to so much uh, that it, we needed to put it out there in an adjustable format. So hopefully, people who read the book uh, are going to see some of these things. And take the ball and run with it, and start doing uh, even cooler, more elaborate uh, trials and experiments to uh, to further the knowledge. That that's probably my best hope here. Great.
0: Let's loop back to the the the, the brain nervous system fascial connection, um, okay. because you also talk about something a study in the book around meditation and its effect, or the outcome that meditation intervention had on lower back pain
1: right so uh, in my department at UPMC we did a pilot study on mindfulness meditation and low back pain and we found that uh, in mindfulness meditation actually I think a lot of your audience probably already know what that is right They know too well what it is and they probably may not want to hear much more about it <laughs> Can we have some mindlessness meditation please um, anyway, we found that wow mindfulness meditation can make a difference in a person's experience or perception of low back pain. Unfortunately, uh, only eight people completed the study out of about 88, uh, had a lot of compliance issues and that is not considered to be a statistically significant sample. Now, since, um, since the, the, I will not say since the publishing of my book, but since the manuscript was turned in, um, we finished another study that had 200 people. And we found the same conditions. So there was, a, there was a noticeable change in their perceptions of low back pain. Now, there was not a change in their mechanical pain. So they're just sitting here, and they're like, yeah, it's not bothering too much, but oh, that thing I do when I get up and walk across the room, um, yeah, it still kind of bothers me when I do that. That didn't change, but their perception when it was not under mechanical load
0: did. Um, Would that mean that, say, on a a sensation scale, if someone started the study with a perception that their pain was at a 6 out of 10, would that mean that? at the end of that study, if they were in the, the, the successful arm of the trial, they were down to like a one or two out of 10.
1: Yeah. Or even a three. But okay. yes, it was just manageable. It wasn't, yes. Uh, and I don't, um, I don't have it in front of me. I'm sure they use the one to 10 measurement because that's the, that's the most uh, recognized measurement. Yeah. Um, but I have to actually go back and look up the paper. I just, my, uh, my colleague at the department just said here, about two weeks ago, and I'm like, at last. So now I'd like to take that same group and have a group where we do that, and another group where we do, say, a a specific battery of mechanical interventions, Mm -hmm. and see if we can get an outcome that says, okay, so the group that meditated uh, got this result, the group that got the physical intervention got that result, and the group that did both got this result. That, to me, could be a really exciting study in terms of like furthering, okay, here's how this all fits. Now, the reason that this occurred to me uh, or rather the the reason this all came about was uh, my colleague in Germany, Robert Schleit, was using um, an organ bath, which is basically uh, creates a a damp environment for organ tissue so that it can react as likely as it would in the body under normal circumstances uh, in this little vacuum sealed uh, container. Uh, where you repl- where you replicate certain results, so they were able to take a, a fresh piece freshly excised of, of rat fascia and suspend it in this organ bath and drizzle it with different substances chemical substances to see how it would react would it react at all? Was it completely inert or would it under certain conditions contract which is kind of the most basic definition of life if you take a poke at it, it reacts in some fashion. Um, a lot of time was spent on what made it contract. Uh, the thing I noticed buried in the paper was that nitric oxide caused it to relax even more. And as somebody who wants to get your fascia to relax in the appropriate areas to to improve your your, your health uh, and your pain levels, I thought well, that's really interesting. And I don't know how it came about that I discovered the, the studies that showed that uh, meditators have a higher than average level of nitric oxide in their bodies. So I just happened to be like, well, okay, this study, this study, and this study. There's got to be a connection here. There's got to be a relationship going on between these three things. To me, that that just those three elements can't be random, right? Because when you started talking about the me- the meditation
0: improving perception of back pain, I-, I went to kind of Buddhist mode, thinking, okay, someone is tuning into their body, they're feeling the affliction of the, the sensation, but then they're reappraising that sensation in their mind, and they're training themselves to sort of not react to it in, in, this, in a habitual way. And because of that, they're not, they're, like, the sense of suffering around the pain is not proliferating as much. The sensation might be exactly the same, the stimulus of pain might be there, but the, the, the reaction to it has, has right. dampened down. But you're actually saying that, that there's a, there seems to be this mechanism, Um, And I wanted to ask you if we know what that mechanism is in terms of why does meditation produce more nitric oxide in the, is it, is it in Mm -hmm. the blood that it's getting distributed or is it?
1: That's a good question. I, I, I imagine that's where they'd be measuring it from. I honestly don't know the answer to that. So when we log off this call, I'm going to be looking that up uh, or calling my colleague over at UPMC. Um, that's a good question. Uh, where I was going with this was uh, thinking about my own uh, experience in Buddhist focusing techniques and, you know, being aware that if you can tamp down the anxiety and just become the observer and observe that place that hurts long enough, you can observe it long enough to watch it change, mm-hmm. you know, however it manifests to you. Uh, Cause some, some, you know, to me, uh, the more I would, focus on an area of my body, in this case, when I was learning these techniques, sometimes it would be a particular color or a shape or a density. So I I had a very um, synesthesia kind of uh, thing going on, and I would watch those things change. So once you realize that it's changeable, this weird thing called hope happens, because it's like, wow, maybe I don't have to be stuck with this. Mm -hmm. If I can observe it change, even if a lot of times it doesn't seem like it's changing, then there's the potential for more change um, I really think it's a mind body condition and and you know you talked about us being like top down um, you know we have a lot of again here we are mind body, so the mind comes first now i'm a body worker, so i 'm body mind can I change the brain through giving physical input to the body? can you absolutely can i change can I change my body? by changing the way my brain thinks about, observes, or reacts to things going in my body. Absolutely. What if we do both? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's an emerging school of thought, and I'm just gonna go right into this, so stop me if we need to go back and unpack something. Uh, But I remember seeing that, uh, that was one of the points you wanted me to bring up, was the uh, school of embodied cognition. Okay, Uh, And that was developed by uh, George Lakoff, L-A-K-O-F-F. And their idea is that in George Lakoff studied with um, oh 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 no, no thank you Noam Chomsky Noam Chomsky uh, in terms of semantics and psychology and this was like in the 70s when computer science was first emerging and you know it, it's funny but um, Tom Myers is fond of saying and he tends to be right that uh, we our metaphors for the body always change with our level of technology <laughs> so now that we're in the computer in the digital age we use all these digital metaphors for explaining how the body works
0: um let me just interrupt just you mentioned his name a few times and we should probably just give give um recognition to tom myers tom tom is sort of a international internationally regarded body worker he's developed his own system of of uh, body work called structural integration right
1: Well, um, no, no, not, not exactly he uh he developed and evolved the system of structural integration to give it um, an even clearer uh, anatomical and physiological foundation. So when we say it's all connected, uh, he actually spent years developing maps that show you, well, in this aspect of the body, here's how it's all connected. In that aspect of the body, here's how it's all connected. And and he and I uh, spent quite hundreds of hours in the cadaver lab actually trying to dissect these connections out and show that it wasn't just a, a curious mental construct, but that if you chose to, you could present the body this way physically also, not just the way it's been presented for 500 years of clinical anatomy. And so that's who Tom is. Right. the book is called Anatomy Trains, because he's a
0: train buff. Yep. And it's not just a, uh, that what you're describing is not just a children's song. No. no. <laughs> the head bone connected to the neck bone, that kind of thing. It just, yeah, that's,
1: that's all true, via the fascia. Uh. Right,
0: right. Let's, let's come back to the, to the the embodied cognition piece, though. I, sure. I, I, got, you I got, derailed to you me. for a second. So, so
1: George was a student of Noam Chomsky's, and the big thing there was, was binary, that the, that the brain was a separate thing from the body, and, and that goes all the way back to Descartes, and in that kind of dualism, uh, I do go into this in chapter five of my own book, uh, and I do not make Descartes the villain. I just make him a, he had his own agenda and, in, in you know, we love to co-opt dead historical figures to prove our points in the living world. Um, but I try to, I try to do, I, I don't see Descartes as, as being a bad guy in this piece. I just see him as being misunderstood and just trying to be left alone by the church to do his own thing. But anyway, um... George Lakoff wasn't buying that the cognition was solely a function of logic and binary uh, processes. And he keyed on the idea that the way we process is absolutely physical. We process reality through physical means, and thinking is metaphorical in context. This is why, when we say we can't understand something, we're in over our heads. Mm-hmm can 't we 're over our heads we can't i can 't grasp it right we can 't grasp it um that 's another one he catalogued over seventy five hundred separate metaphors for cognition that were all body based hmm. he also and and I have not delved into it um he actually because his other his he also was uh, he had a dual major in mathematics. Um, He actually has a whole book explaining how uh, mathematics also has a systematic rooting in the physical body, which just blows me away. But I know math is not my strong point, but I hope to get to that one day. Um, So this idea of embodied cognition is not just, I think therefore I am, but I experience, therefore I am, Mm -hmm. you know Uh, something about her, Pulled me to her. That's another physical thing. We use it to describe emotional processes, not just mental processes. And, um, and somehow, um, I, I just, you know, because of, because of watching how, I mean, people in pain, it affects them emotionally. How could it not? Right. When, when you can't do the things that you want to be doing or you've been told that, okay, this is as good as you're going to get. You're just going to have to live with it. Um, And and Mind you, I've also seen people that I couldn't help. Uh, Fortunately, they're in the minority, and and those are some of the hardest things to do because I just don't know what's going on there. Um, uh, If you ease a person's pain, you ease their thinking around the pain. When, When you hit your hand with a hammer by accident, how hard is it to have a rational thought in that moment? Pretty hard. Imagine that you're walking around all day with the equivalent of having just hit your thumb with a hammer because nothing seems to make that pain go away. It has an effect on your ability to think. Um, if you can ease that, that potentially clears up mental processes. It certainly clears up emotional processes. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are in less pain are happier, they're less anxious. Uh, I'm not. Me- I mean, I'm not giving people uh, measurable indexes to catalog this when they first start coming to see me, and when they're done, because I'm not doing a study like that, and I have to maintain a certain patient load. But if I did, I think you'd find overwhelmingly that that is the case. So, um, you know, I, you know,
0: I, and it's not just as, as it's it's not as my understanding. It's not just pain itself that's that would have a. A, a bottom-up effect on the mind. I mean, it could be tensional pattern itself, and and there's this kind of idea. Um, it's it's a little bit of a cliche phrase, but like issues lodged in the tissues or issues stuck in the tissues. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned this concept in the book of called an SRE or a somato-emotional release, where uh,
1: or a somato-emotional response. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, um, so but I'm not sure which one they call it. SERs, SERs. Yeah, so that's when, um, I, and this just happened to me last week. Now I want to clarify this for those of you who are like, "What?" Um, they don't always happen, and they don't always need to happen. Uh, but sometimes they happen, and they're real, and, and and they and they do need to happen in that case. So you know, i I'm working on a place that's core to the person's tensional pattern that I'm trying to resolve and improve and they have a strong emotional reaction to it. Often it's fear, anger, or sorrow. Uh, it can be other things too. Um, but very often those are the three, cause those are the ones we try to, I think we tend to hold in and not let out so much. So there's a tension, you know, if you really want to cry and you're in a public place and you're like, I can't cry in public. It takes tension to hold those tears back. If you're really angry and you want to punch somebody and you have a good reason for your anger, it takes tension to hold that anger in and not just act out in violence. If you have that subjected, if you're subjected to that often enough, you're going to build up a resistance to expressing that internal tension that could result in a physical pattern. I have had it happen to myself in issues that, honestly, psychologically, I thought were still resolved. And I still think they were, but when suddenly an area related to that incident that happened to me was touched upon, I suddenly had a very vivid flashback of that moment. Now, I was very aware of who I was in time and space in the here and now, but for a second, wow, I hadn't thought about that in years. And that's the curious thing. And this is where we get into uh, what a friend of mine would call informed speculative BS world. Um, But there's there's an aspect to the the collagen, to the connective tissue system, that has a liquid crystal arrangement. So it has a very regular ordered molecular pattern, uh, just like the liquid crystals in my computer display. So does that mean that, we, that, that there could be some kind of informational network through our collagen matrix? Uh, that, to me, is an intriguing thing to... To think about, um, I think that'd be really cool if it was the case. I'm not going to say it's the case because there's just way too many things that that we don't know about that. But but there are, there are uh, places that are building computer processors out of mucus and bone uh, in Israel in Tel Aviv, which to me is just crazy. But they're building processors out of organic materials, not silicon. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody's tried anything with collagen yet. Um and there's also a new class of cells that we just discovered called telecytes uh that are in the, the extracellular matrix in the fascia uh, that are cellular messengers. And we just discovered this a little over a year ago that these cells even exist. And they seem to they they, they seem to wander through the cellular matrix and deliver chemical messages to other different cells. So it's like, okay, here's the message. Put it, put it in the tube, like the old pneumatic tubes that uh, they used to use in office buildings. You know, now it's like, okay, it's like we're sending an email, but we're doing it via a cell. It's going to carry this, this email message to this other cell and give it to them. Uh, we don't even know what these messages are or what they might mean or how they're even being influenced to do this, but we've observed that, okay, that's what's going on. And these are chemical messages in this case with these telecytes. So in terms of the intracellular communication throughout the body... Uh, which has to include the brain and the nerves and the tissues. There's a lot going on, and we're just uh, we're just beginning to discover even more.
0: So we are at the frontier of understanding the the communicative function of the fascia.
1: Correct. There, there's the uh, so, so if everybody's sitting at home now who's not driving, uh, if you uh, if you take your arm, if you if you kind of push your feet into the floor, and reach up as hard as you can, but keep pushing your feet into the floor, you're going to feel a tension somewhere between your arms and and your back and your buttocks, and maybe down into even your legs on the floor. That's, That's the tensional aspect of fascia, okay? So there is a tensional communication that works through all your body being able to feel itself in movement engage things like okay how far am i stretching does that feel safe can i go further to reach that thing at the top of the shelf whatever but there's a lot going on on a cellular level that we are just beginning to unpack Mm -hmm.
0: and given these emergent or these emergent understandings around uh, the functions of fascia in terms of chronic tension inflammation communication or global communication in the body um Mm -hmm. What do we, in, in addressing it as a system in the, in, in the body, what do we want to do to take care of it at this point? And sort of the backside of that question makes me think of a novel by Jeff Dyer, or, or a collection of short stories, essays by Jeff Dyer called Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do Yoga. <laughs> like, like astrophysics for people in a hurry yeah well, if people have no interest in the in the, you know, the, the quasi spiritual stuff of yoga should they be doing something like yoga or
1: um yes and and sometimes it comes down to the teacher you know i i've been a i've been a i started doing yoga in my late teens early twenties uh and uh i never completely i never in the last ten years uh very very devotedly um And, uh, you know, I don't want to say, you know, if if you're going to yoga and you're like, I don't get this, this isn't working for me, try a couple of different teachers and find one that maybe is a good fit. But if it's not yoga, uh, there's this other thing called Zenga, which is like a combination between Pilates and yoga uh, that's pretty cool. Not every place offers it, but the key is slow, mindful movement. Okay, so stop watching Netflix while you're on your treadmill stay in your body when you're on your elliptical machine and feel okay how is that feeling between my shoulders how does that feel when i go down into my feet ah okay when i pull my arm this way harder on one side versus the other focus on what you're feeling inside your body while you're already doing what you're doing if you love going to the gym and you know pounding the machines great don't stop doing that if that makes your soul sing if that makes your heart happy that's great. Do a few slower reps and just observe what's going on. Feel it in your body rather than just tune it out and do something else so you can get two things done at the same time. So I think that, you know, in, in, in the, the mindful aspect of yoga, uh, and in that whole body will be called tensegral expansion aspect of yoga, as opposed to, oh, look, I can shampoo my head with my feet. Um, that's what the really important thing in yoga is, is being able to be the observer of your own body, not just how far or how deep you can get into the pose. Because today I might be a level three in this pose, but I might be a level one in that pose. And a few days later, because life happens, it might be flipped around. I can I can fly my crow now. I, I and I have not been able to do that, but that's something new that I just over years have been able to do. Um, and and it feels it feels great. I never thought I would necessarily be able to do that. You um, know. But it's, um, it, I'm not sure why I put that in there. Uh, except to say the growth continues, but it's about the mindful application of what you're doing, right, whatever it is we have
0: a simple phrase in the style of yoga I practice called yin yoga that we use the body we don't use the body to get into a pose, we use the pose to get into the body, <laughs> right, so it doesn't really matter what the pose ultimately looks like, it's more are you fully present within that experience, but you touched on a, f- a term i don't want to get like, get off the hook too quickly with this um okay. use the term tensegrity which okay. comes back to, it's. A, I know it's a big concept, but it comes back to kind of the global Im- importance or the global significance of the fascial webbing, fascial net. Um, mm-hmm. And so do, can you please define tensegrity for listeners? And then I just want to maybe, we can close on the implications of that towards sure. doing something like great. yoga or doing something like a body work that you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um most of our view, um, first of all, tensegrity is a combination of the words tension and integrity. And um, in the, tense, and the tensegrity model is based on a three-dimensional triangle or a truss model. So if you think of a pyramid and you think of the Parthenon, uh, one has weathered the elements better than the other. But the um, regardless of the construction methods, um, if you have a truss, if you have a three-dimensional triangle and you put pressure on the top, it will, e- it will evenly distribute the strain throughout the whole mechanism. If you have a square frame design, which is what our house is based on, which is what most of our machines are based on, uh, it by its nature cannot evenly distribute the strain throughout the whole mechanism. We have been laboring under the idea that the body is a square frame design. Now, an elbow in a bicep is a lever and a pulley, no doubt. But there were aspects of the body that very much fit into this idea of tensegrity. In fact, I I spend the entire second chapter of my book uh, explaining the tensegrity model. And the cool thing is, is the tensegrity model goes all the way down to the cellular system also. So cells have tensegrity as part of their nature. So the idea of tensegrity is if you pull enough on one area, you you can send a tensional message to another part of of the same structure. If you're resilient, you can handle that tension and deal with it, bounce back, do whatever you're doing. If you don't have a lot of resiliency, you're more likely to to begin to develop a chronic structural default or have a systems failure which would be like spraining your ankle. Okay.
0: Yeah, I just saw that I just saw the new Star Wars, so a disturbance in the I was reminded of the idea of a disturbance in the force locally has an impact on the force <laughs> on a macro level. But, you know, in terms of yes, in terms yes, of in terms I'm, of I'm quite correct. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in terms of application to the body though, you know, someone like might have like left shoulder pain mm-hmm. and think that they have to go in and, and work on the soft tissue there, but it's plausible. And I see that as I'm also an acupuncturist, I see okay. the strange mm-hmm. aspects of needling the person's right ankle yes. and immediately within 30 s- seconds to a minute getting dramatic shift in the experience of that pain in the, in the left shoulder, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not saying this is like speaking directly to 10 segments, but it's the idea that like a change at some other point in the body or part of the body releasing the tensional pattern somewhere else can affect the, the unhealthy region.
1: Correct. Correct. And and some of it is very simple to explain some of it, um, some of it, is harder to explain, but at least theoretically, uh, but, but Ida Rolf, who was uh, the founder of structural integration and the developer of it, used to say, where do you think it is, it ain't. So I was talking earlier about the sensory nerves. So what tends to happen is people come in complaining about an area that's overstretched. Now, if something is overstretched, that means something else is generally pulling on that area to stretch it, and it becomes short and tight or compacted. And that's the area that needs to be treated in order to really affect a change, not just the area that hurts. That needs to be treated also. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, So that's an example of, of, a, of a tensegrity. Now, what's interesting is you can work on one shoulder area and suddenly the person will say, wow, the other shoulder feeling better and you didn't even touch it yet. Okay. What's interesting is so you know the so in the back of the body there's the spine and there's the trapezius which is this triangular muscle that goes this way and on this side of the spine there's another triangular muscle which is the other trapezius well what we found in dissection with the fresh tissue specimen that we then turned over is there's collagen fibers running right across to the other side of the trapezius that's going to give some force transmission mm-hmm. might that be why you can work one side and the other side already starts to relax because somehow that tensional message is just on a tissue level, just going from one side to the other. That seems plausible to me. I'd love to figure out a way to test it. Yeah, exactly. Me too.
0: Well, look, we've covered a lot, and I've asked a lot of your time so far. I want to, oh,
1: this is um, great. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Yeah, I've, to, I've really to,
0: enjoyed it too. Um, we, I just want to give you a shout out for your book again. Um, this, and the thing, the reason I actually wanted to really bring you on the program was that, um, your writing is extremely accessible and there's they, many, there are many books out there on fashion now, all of which are loaded with great information, but they tend to be more or less, a, a, also a cure for insomnia. If anyone is struggling <laughs> to sleep, they, they can, they can put you to sleep quickly. Um, yours reads a bit like a novel. Or, a test,
1: or if you have to write a book, it made accessible. I tested your stamina.
0: <laughs> no, this was great. So yeah. it's FASHA. What is it? Why it matters? And we will be including a link um, for where they can purchase directly th- uh, through the publisher, Handspring Publishing. And they're op- the publisher is offering a discount for anyone that uses this code um, and this link access. Um, so we'll include that and people if they want to find you or learn more about you do you have are you a blogger or do you have anything online uh,
1: you know what I, I stopped blogging when i started writing the book and i really want to get back to it but right now um you can go to my website which is my name david that'll also be in the show notes or if my name's down there at the yeah, bottom of the yeah, street and i also have a place called com that sells my books sells some other books uh uh, on fashion connective tissue, as well as some of the research videos that that I've made over the years uh, that kind of were the precursor to, to writing the book, so you can find me there also.
0: Great. Well, thank you for um, being our aficionado. Nice. Thank you, Josh. It's been
1: great. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, David. Thank you.
0: Okay, we'll stop there for now. And if you enjoyed this episode, this interview with David Lasondack, please consider sharing this on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, or sharing it in an email or newsletter to your friends. All circulation is greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to get a copy of David's new book, Fascia, What It Is and Why It Matters, there will be a link for that in the show notes that includes a discount code from the publisher. That's only available directly through the publisher, available in the show notes below this episode. If you'd like to follow along with the Everyday Sublime podcast, you can do so by subscribing in iTunes, and there's a link for you in the show notes or you can subscribe directly at my site at joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. If you'd like to train or study in yin yoga with me, you can check out my offerings at yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. And as always, I look forward to sharing more reflections with you in subsequent episodes, as always, from my practice to yours. So until the next episode, I wish you all the best, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.